Welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree. This is brought to you in association with bodyheartmindspirit.co.uk. In this episode, I spoke to my friend Catherine, who was a Mormon for her entire childhood and a lot of her adult life. Um, and then in 2020, she had this kind of awakening um, where she realized that Mormonism was all um, bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, we talked about her life in Mormonism, the sort of, sort of things she used to believe in, and uh, what the institution was like that she was brought up in, and what her experience was like seeing through it all and having this kind of awakening moment where she um, freed herself from Mormonism and then now what her life's been like since leaving Mormonism. She is about to do a university degree in the psychology of coercive control and she has already done a course with Stephen Hassan who is an expert on cults and uh, cult leavers um, and uh, this was a very very interesting conversation she's had a, a fascinating life and her leaving of Mormonism and the way it all fell apart for her was, was, was amazingly interesting and I think learning from stories like Catherine's uh, can really help any person uh, in life no matter what walk of life you're in we all fall prey to ideologies get captured by them at different times and um, we can become free of them uh, and then we become wiser a bit more discerning the next time uh, an alluring ideology comes along so you can template these kind of stories onto your own life and see in what ways have you been captured by ideology and how can you become free of it so I think this is a beneficial exercise for anybody um, to study cults and people who have left cults and how they left them. Um, and uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoy. So, Catherine, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. Hello. <laughs> nice to see Hello. you. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, so we uh, have known each other for a few years and yeah. we were just hanging out, talking one day, and I said I was going to go and watch The Book of Mormon, which is a musical uh, that kind of takes the piss out of Mormons, uh, made by the guys <laughs> that do, did South Park. And you said, oh, right, oh, great, I'm going to go and watch that too. Um, and uh, and then we, we got talking about things and uh, Mormons and that. And you said, oh, I, I was a Mormon. And now I'm not. Um, and then we had a very, very interesting conversation. Um, so you've got a a very interesting story of a, of a life within Mormonism. And then this kind of, I might describe it as a kind of waking up out of the spell um, yep. and then a whole kind of post-Mormon life, uh, a, a new new kind of life. And that's what we're going to explore today. 
Um, and for a couple of reasons. One is that it it's you know, very interesting. I mean, I, I don't know that much about Mormonism. Um, I know a, a little bit and I went on a, when I was at university, I went on a field trip to, they have like a genealogy centre in London and I, I went there and and that. And I've also watched some of the South Park. There's a, the, the guys from South Park made another very funny film called Orgasmo, which I recommend people watch about Mormons. Um, and um, so what am I saying? So the, you've got this very interesting story of being part of this, this, this kind of fascinating world uh, mm-hmm. of, of Mormonism, um, which has got all sorts, of, all sorts of, you know, strange and bizarre things, but also, you know, there's, there's all sorts of reasons why people are are Mormons and continue to be Mormons and we can explore all of that mm-hmm. and you know the other thread is this kind of seeing through well just kind of popping your head outside and having a bigger perspective and suddenly realizing mm-hmm. that what you've believed in your whole life isn't true which is uh, a very common theme in for anyone who's interested in spirituality uh, of any type or atheism or maybe you were spiritual and you become an atheist or whatever you know it happens to people and one of the things that is going to be a a theme in this conversation is how people can get captured by ideologies any type of ideology a religious Mm -hmm. ideology political ideology um scientism uh as a a ideology and um it can happen to anybody and so there's that too so uh there we go that's me me kind of just setting the stage for our our conversation and um so i probably a good place to start would be if you could just describe what mormonism is uh to begin with if you think that's a good place to start yeah no that's fine um so it's always it's always a bit tricky to describe it because i have my Mormon answer to that question and then my post-Mormon answer to that question Do they're both. quite different as Do you both. yeah so as as a member as a Mormon um I would have said that we are a Christian group or we were uh, yeah it's a Christian group um the basic belief is in Jesus Christ that he lived died and was resurrected Um, And then on top of that, we also believe that or we believed that um, Joseph Smith was called to be a prophet by Jesus Christ through a vision. He then received an ancient record in the form of gold plates, which he translated into English and the religion was born. Um, There are I would have also always clarified that there's one thing that sets us apart um, and that's that we believed in three separate members of the Godhead so God Jesus Christ the Holy Ghost are three distinctly separate people which obviously separates Mormonism from Christianity in quite a major theological way Uh, but as a member I would always clarified with that point because that's kind of the most important thing I guess for Mormons so that's kind of the that's the religious view of it and and what Mormonism is um 
this sort of Christian sect that believes in Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith as a prophet. And then on from that, there has been a continuous living prophet ever since until now. And there still is one. They still believe that there is a living prophet. <clears throat> um, and he speaks directly for God and um, tells everybody what they need to be doing. So that's that's kind of the, the religious point. I guess in my post-Mormon world, <laughs> I would I would describe that quite differently. Um, I no longer see them as being a Christian religion, um, despite the fact that they definitely have Jesus Christ at the centre of what they believe in. And I do believe that most members do have that. And I think that that's really important to them. It was really important to me. I see that it's important to them. Um, I don't necessarily see it as a Christian based religion because I don't I think the prophet is more important than Jesus Christ so it doesn't really matter what Jesus said it, it, 2000 years ago it matters more what the prophet's saying now because he speaks for Christ now according to them so yeah what, I think what happens when uh, <laughs> so the prophet's a living person who's like the son that's of, correct. Well, and what happens when they die I mean, there must so this this is this yeah. like an unbroken line back to Joseph Smith in eighteen whenever when, when was Joseph Smith alive? Uh, he was born in eighteen o four, I believe. He founded the religion in eighteen thirty. He claims to have had his first vision in eighteen twenty. Depending on which version you read, there are actually multiple versions of that. Despite what I was told, that was just one of um, the issues that I came across when I first started going kind of down that rabbit hole really um was that there are multiple versions of that story and they all kind of tell a different date but yeah roughly the church would tell you that he had his vision in 1820 he finally formed the church in 1830 so yeah we're going back 200 years and, and then uh, so you know they, he had a successor and then that person died and they had a successor is, is it That's an unbroken correct. lineage then? So, yeah, so he was um, martyred, is the best way to describe it. He died for his beliefs, whether or not I, I believe that now, I don't know, but uh, certainly that's what I was always taught. Um, and then his successor was Brigham Young. Um, he was the person that took them to Salt Lake City. So he was the one that crossed the plains and took them on their journey that most, most people that know anything about Mormonism will know about that, uh, along with polygamy. That's the other big one and um it was always taught to me that it was brigham young that was polygamous i've since found out that actually the seven prophets were polygamous so that was quite an interesting thing to find out um so yeah there's there's that sort of history of it but yeah the living prophet now is russell nelson his name is russell nelson um he's 99 i believe now so he speaks directly for god when he dies, um, it will be Darlin Oaks who becomes the prophet. So that's actually already set in stone. You you can predict that uh, from one prophet to another. So providing that Darlin Oaks doesn't die before the current prophet, he will become the prophet. Yeah, and you and I sorry, I interrupted you. You're part halfway through your view of Mormonism as an ex-Mormon. How you would describe it now? So you say it's not a you don't see it as a Christian um, tradition because the prophet is more important. What the prophet said is more important than what Jesus says. 
yes uh, i yeah. i think that does se separate them and i would have never said that as a member i would have absolutely i would have died on the hill that it was a christian religion because it was it jesus christ is at the center of everything that they do and i think it does and it kind of muddies the water a little bit um actually when i was still a member when i was still believing in it all i actually read an article um entitled why mormonism is the fourth abrahamic religion um and that was actually a really interesting article because it kind of separated it out from christianity um and judaism and islam into its own sector of Abrahamic faith so Jesus Christ was still fundamental as he is essentially to the Jews and the Muslims as well but they have um they have a different role for him to play and in a sense Jesus in Mormonism has a different role to play than he does in mainstream Christianity that's how I saw it then I still can almost see it like that now that it is sort of a fourth abrahamic group um but with its roots in jesus they they do believe in jesus they definitely believe in jesus <laughs> okay and so in terms of your your history with mormonism and your life within it mm -hmm. what does that look like uh, I, I understand you were about two when you're That's married, yeah yeah, so it was actually uh, just my mum. She joined the church when I was two. Um, that we didn't have any other family members who were members of the church. None of her family were. Um, and yes, I was essentially raised in it. I always say that I was born and raised. I wasn't quite born, but I was definitely raised um, by the religion within it. Um, my whole life was shaped by that, really. I, there was nothing before that in terms of my life if you see what I mean so yeah I went through all of its programs it has um a program for children which starts at 18 months um and that goes up to three years old so I took part in that program I then went into the children's program which goes from three to 12 which is called primary so I went through that program then they have a youth program which goes from 12 to 18 that's it's actually changed the ages have changed slightly now it's kind of irrelevant really but that's those are the ages that i went through so 12 to 18 and then 18 to about 30 is something called young single adults um i was only there for a short time because i got married which is actually the idea you shouldn't really get to 30. <laughs> you should be married and gone into adulthood before that um is the goal but yeah 18 to 30 is uh young single adults and then you go sort of graduate through those programs and they um it's quite interesting because i would have looked at it as a sort of form of continuing education when i look back at it now i don't think i learned anything in my 30s and 40s that i hadn't really learned in primary it doesn't there's no depth to it it doesn't get any deeper than you learn in primary right which and is also quite interesting because that's not how you're taught it <laughs> no and um so you you said that um you know in our previous conversation that when uh you were you were 12 um there's this girls youth program and you described that as where the deep indoctrination took place for you yeah what, so that what... was where the rules start being read yeah um so up until that point 
that there's a lot of you see somebody being bullied in the playground at school what do you do or what would Jesus do um you know you stole a cookie from the cookie jar and your mum asked who it was do you blame your brother or do you stand or do you own up to it you know those sorts of moral just life teaching things really all based on Jesus what would Jesus do Jesus loves you all that kind of stuff so that that goes up to 12 at 12 in the youth program that's really where the rules start being read so we would regularly have to kneel on the floor on a Sunday to check that our skirts were below our knees. Um, we were restricted in what we could wear, quite heavily restricted in what we could wear. Um, language was sort of drilled into us that you never use bad language. Um, the sort of activities and the the hairstyles that we were encouraged to have, not necessarily, we weren't like the FLGS where they literally have the same hairstyles. I think it's four hairstyles that they're allowed to have. Um, we were allowed individuality, but it had to be modest. It, you know, we we could dye our hair, but it was it would have been frowned upon a little bit. Um, so yeah, the rules started being read. Um, it became weekly discussions about no sex before marriage. Um, we would, as young women in particular, modesty was a huge thing. Um, and we were regularly taught that if we were wearing something immodest, that the boys would not be worthy because they would be thinking impure thoughts about us and therefore their unworthiness would be based on our clothing choices or whatever. So yeah, that's where the deep, well, that's where the indoctrination happens. And as an adult, I then read handbooks because I was then called to teach or asked to teach those classes for the youth and for primary. And often it would say things like um, young people need to have a testimony of Jesus Christ before they leave youth. Otherwise, they're lost. So there was very much this sense of really drumming this stuff into us regularly lots of interviews with adults which are highly inappropriate I know now <laughs> I didn't think it at the time but now I know that it would be highly inappropriate for any adult to ask a child about their sexual behavior for example um to comment on clothing or anything really that you know just removing our individuality so yeah we would have regular interviews with men on our own um yeah so that's really where the that's where the I would call it brainwashing now it's where the brainwashing took place. And there's a, uh, a lot of pressure that they were putting on you as young girls. It was like it was your, it would be your fault if you, that you made the boys think impure thoughts. It's yeah. like the, and that was the, a big theme. Like the boys are, are so weak spirited, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and sort of imbeciles. Yeah. Um, and uh, you've got to hold it together. Uh, yeah. and you're responsible for not only the girls but also the boys that, yes that, that's right. yeah. it's um it's very much a patriarchal society um and I still kind of maintain now that I'm not entirely sure I was damaged by that in in a long-term way I don't feel less than because I'm a woman and I never did and I don't now um I more so from those comments actually I I see the damage that it does to men Mm. I think it's really interesting um, the harm patriarchy does to men. 
And I almost feel more passionate about bringing that to people's attention than I do about women. Because I think women generally in society, if you live within a mainstream society, which I did, of course, because I, I lived in England, so there weren't very many Mormons. Um, so yeah, I was, I was pretty much raised in a secular world in that sense. And so women were equal, essentially. And I, I never felt less than. Um, but yeah, I look now at the role that the men played and the sorts of conversations that I had with men, both in youth and as an adult. And I see how damaging that is to otherwise really quite nice men. And yet they would do horrendous things, say horrendous things, because that's what they thought they were being told to do. Hmm. So yeah, I, I actually see the patriarchy as being more damaging to men. <laughs> well, anyway. It's a bummer for everyone. Frankly. It is completely. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's very easy to sort of look at women and see them as very downtrodden. You could do that in any society. You could look at Muslim men the same way and Muslim women the same way. You could look at Jewish men and women the same way. It doesn't matter who they are. Um, any society where any group of people is marginalized or not listened to or not respected it's both parties that suffer because of that because everybody has their role to play in yeah. the world well we're yeah. all we're all in it together we're one big family yeah, and what's um so that's saying what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander but the reverse is true. <laughs> what's bad for the goose is bad for the gander exactly um, definitely yeah and um, also, also, you you said that um, Jesus can see everything, and um, and you can't hide your sins. That's now, right. That must have been quite a, an oppressive state of mind to to live on, live in, live yeah, on. Yeah, and there's there's several parts to that. So there's the first part where, um, yeah, where Jesus can see everything that we're doing. So we can't ever hide our secrets from Jesus because he can see everything, including our thoughts. And that was a really big theme was that he could also see our thoughts. So we had to think pure thoughts as I well just, as- I just got to just get in there. Yeah, like, yeah go, go. I, as, as someone who's, uh, you know, I've been meditating for 30 years or something like that. You know, I've looked at my thoughts in great detail. <laughs> um, and I think this is true for most people. Most of our thoughts are utterly insane. Yeah. <laughs> and the the thought of particularly trying to get, you know, 12 year old children to tame your thoughts and to make them presentable to the most pure person that's ever lived mm -hmm. and be trying to match it against them is just that's an impossible task. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, what, the, what, I mean, how did you do? <laughs> so 12, <laughs> your thoughts as a 12 year old. Um, well, 12, 42, I don't think it makes much difference. I think it's yeah. fairly brutal as a, as a mm. suggestion goes, this idea that somebody can see your thoughts all the time is, is quite, it is very oppressive. Um, so yeah, there was that literal thought. So there was a period of time, for example, I think it was quite a short period of time, but as a child, so I would have been between seven and 14. So I don't quite know how old I was. Um, I just know where I was, where I was living, which is why I can age myself. But yeah, somewhere between seven and 14. So 
sort of preteen to early teen. And um, and I actually took to showering in my swimsuit because otherwise this old man was going to see me having a shower. <laughs> and even that's relatively abusive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that shouldn't happen, should it? That I'm that frightened of this yeah. thing in the sky that's watching me. Yeah, um, wow. And it, I, I guess I reasoned that eventually that he created my body. It didn't really matter what he saw of me and, you know, it's fine but and so I moved on past that but yeah that was that was definitely an issue but then there's also the secondary part of that um where priesthood holders who are always male and always adult um also had something called the power of discernment now I do think that discernment exists I think that people humans naturally can be discerning um and we you know we make judgments on things all the time and we don't walk down dark alleyways on our own at night or whatever just because you know it's just logic and it's it is a sense of discernment um and i do think that we have that and i think that we can read language in people's faces and their body language we can we can just make decisions about things that are going on around us and that's fine what we were always taught the power of discernment was was that um, these men could think like God. They were literally representing God or Jesus Christ interchangeable, despite them being different people. But um, yeah, and they, they were literally representing these deities who could see everything. And therefore, when we couldn't lie to Jesus, we also couldn't lie to these men um, because they would have been able to know. So there was also that fear hanging over us and this is another point where really I kind of feel empathy for these men because they were just men sometimes they were builders sometimes they were lawyers sometimes they were bankers or whatever they were and they were being put in rooms with these frightened teenagers and adults who were telling them all sorts of things that they didn't need to know yeah. <laughs> um, with absolutely zero training on how to deal with that they weren't they're not like uh catholic priests or um church of england vicars they're not trained in any way shape or form they're just given this role and left to get on with it um and so yeah i think actually that was harmful to everybody really because we would sit in these interviews and just spill everything things that didn't ever need to be discussed ever because yeah. we couldn't lie we couldn't we wouldn't be able to lie and if we did the guilt then would take over so people did lie in in interviews all the time but the guilt was quite extreme for some of those people does it uh i mean is, is suicide uh common among mormons or is that forbidden i mean it uh, what you're describing seems like the perfect circumstances for teenagers to have just had enough uh, and and um, and they're unbet you know the feeling of guilt and shame and the oppression and all of that um yeah i can imagine that driving people over the edge but i, I also know that suicide is taboo um yeah with, in, um, with, uh, with a, a lot of christian sects so suicide would have been tragic it would have been a tragic death. Um, I guess people would have had different views on it. So I did have one friend who took his own life um, 
and and that was it was just tragic and i know that his family had some things said to them that shouldn't have been said and certainly that i think mainstream members would not have believed um things like he he wouldn't make it to heaven because he took his own life and that's a sin i don't know that most members would view view it like that um but yeah essentially it's, it's not something that um i don't know I, it's difficult i think it would just be a tragic thing um in terms of suicide rates um i don't know what the rates are here amongst mormon youth i know in very heavily in very densely populated mormon areas suicide rates are high amongst lgbt youth oh yeah, um, I suppose, yeah. That, that's very common it's often discussed i don't know what the rates are though i so i can't comment on that it yeah. precisely but i know that 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 it is an issue yeah um, I mean, and also a lot of this stuff you're describing, it, it's, it seems like it's right on the edge of what's legal. Uh, and yeah. and I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, so I watched a documentary years ago on Mormonism in America, and it was where they kind of have an actual kind of Mormon town. And they had, um, they were practicing polygamy. Mm -hmm. um, which was against the law, but they just mm -hmm. did it anyway. And and I, you know, it seems with a lot of can I call Mormonism a cult? It, it, you can, you can call of, it whatever you like. Yeah, roughly, you know, whatever. You that, yeah. <laughs> uh, just as a kind of uh, basket uh, definition, that a lot of cults um, they end up on the kind of right on the edge of things being legal and 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 quite and do tip over the uh, you know do illegal things um and kind of think they're going to get away with it and often they do and it's i mean i don't know what's what do you know i know that you've done some you're now doing you've done some study and some courses mm -hmm. and you're doing a degree in all of this which we'll get to but you know this this must be an issue with some of these practices because what what you're describing, I can just imagine children's services, for example, hearing that and thinking, well, uh, that this this isn't legal. And yeah, so there's there's various factors involved there. Um, there is there's various movements going on at the moment, actually, and the church have just last week, I believe, updated their handbook um, so that you if you're an adult, you cannot be in a room with on your own with a child. Um, they've also recommended that adult leaders don't directly contact the youth. Um, so that's, it's, it's a good step, that is. <laughs> we used to do that all the time. We used to contact youth, particularly if their families were not members, we would contact them directly um, to ask them if they wanted to lift somewhere or whatever. I never really considered it as an issue. Um, I do now, <laughs> but I didn't at the time. And I think most people wouldn't. Um, in terms of this sort of interviewing that used to take place, um, I've actually had some therapy with a with a cult therapist, a post-cult therapist. And when I told him about the sort of interviews that I'd had, he said, I'd actually be struck off if I asked that question. Hmm. Um, so we would be regularly asked every six months as youth whether we masturbated, for example. It's completely irrelevant to the world <laughs> whether we did or not. Um, 
no teacher, no doctor, no therapist, no one would ever ask a child that question no. unless there was a physical need to, like like they were mm, harming themselves somehow, yeah. Or, yeah. Um, in which case a doctor might or a psychologist might, but they would be specially trained to ask that question and deal with whatever the answer is. Um, I, I saw a um, I saw a meme a few years ago, and it was like a kind of it was a it was a shot of the Earth, and then it zoomed out. You had the solar system, and then the galaxy, and and then a kind of cluster of galaxies, and then the next shot was a, a great big Jesus with his fingers out saying, "Don't masturbate." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was a That's good right. One. And of course, we couldn't lie. We couldn't lie about yeah. it. People did, but then the guilt would eat them up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but lying about it wouldn't have been acceptable because obviously, well, there's two points to that as well. One, my guess is that any adult would know that you were lying. <laughs> um, but also that idea that they are representing Jesus Christ. Yeah. And therefore, you know, that you wouldn't be able to lie about it for that reason either. So yeah, those, those sorts of, that level of control over your thought process is quite phenomenal. Yeah. And I think something that I always recognized was there, but saw it as a safety thing rather than a, a negative thing now as an adult. Um, and even as a member, um, we actually, when our own children turned 12 and started being interviewed, we actually refused to allow them to be interviewed by an adult on their own. So e even as active believing members, my husband and I had already sort of determined that that was not going to happen we didn't we remembered those questions that sort of level of questioning from when we were in youth and we didn't like it we didn't want that to happen to our mm -hmm. children so we uh, people are already moving on from that a little bit and i know that bishops now they're they're the local leaders um and no longer it's no longer suggested that they ask that question um there is still a serious sin question and everybody knows that the serious sin is sex. So that would still come into it somewhere. Um, so what would happen in that situation is that all the lessons about sex before marriage would be, this is a very serious sin. This is a sin next to murder. This is, you know, the most serious sin that you can commit. Um, and then you would sit in this interview and they would say, do you have any serious sins that you need to disclose? So they they don't necessarily ask you directly anymore, but it's still implied that those things need to be discussed. <laughs> it's incredible that that that's a sin right up there next to murder. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it's definitely right up there next to murder. Yeah. It is a very serious sin. Yeah, yeah, which is, and I suppose, I think the other thing I remember from this. Um, documentary I, th I think girls were getting married very young in this documentary I, it's a long time ago I, I said but I, I, you know in in the old days uh, people used to get married very young um, but now I imagine in, in the Mor in Mormonism in the UK people get married at the kind of regular ages that people do and um, it, to go through your entire teenage life with all of the, all of millions of years of evolutionary biology pushing you towards wanting to have sex as a teenager um and that being framed as a sin 
on the same level as murder the the emotional the physical emotional and dis and cognitive dissonance that you must experience is just tremendous i mean it's yeah because yeah. then on your wedding night then you have to have sex yeah. <laughs> it's like it's almost like it, well, it, it is actually essentially a commandment and um and of course marriages legally any marriage regardless of religion um can be dissolved if it's not consummated so there is that sense that kind of once you're married you have to have sex whether you want to or not um and yeah having to switch from it being a sin to being a commandment is yeah literally it messes with your head a little bit minute, minutes later it's like you know yeah that's right it's the rituals <laughs> rituals done it's like within minutes wow 950 not allowed yeah. 959 yeah. is a commandment. commandment. <laughs> yes, it is a bit mental. <laughs> wow. Okay. And then the other thing, so I think in this um, period where we're still talking about as a kind of young lady, you were basically told that your role in life was to get married um, yeah. and have babies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was my role. Yeah. So um, I also, of course, had to have a good education. So Mormons do separate themselves from some religious sects. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, are not particularly well educated. They, they want them to be educated because that leads to issues. Uh, we were actually actively encouraged to be educated. Um, and so uh, that was always very important because if our husbands died or financial needs occurred then you know we were encouraged to have a level of education where we could work if we need to support our families um so that it, i'm glad for that that education was still a thing um so yeah I, obviously I, you, I you were in you were in conventional school and and all of that yeah. the whole time yeah yeah, that's right. And I went post 16. So I got my GCSEs. I stayed on, did my A-levels, went to university. So yeah, I did all of that before I got married. Um, yeah, so I, and I'm kind of, sort of semi-glad for that now. <laughs> I don't, I never did work with my degree in the end, but that's by the by. Um, I did get an education um, and we were always encouraged to do so. Now, I think, because I, I got married 20 years ago, and relatively we were still able to buy a house on one income just about at that point now i think that's impossible and most women now would work um in the church and and that's okay that would not be frowned upon it would not be seen that they were less than it in fact if anything it would be encouraged because then there wouldn't be a burden on anybody so <laughs> this is there's an interesting kind of competition between education freedom you know being having access to education and, and a wide source of information and then also this very restrictive worldview that you've been indoctrinated and in. you you'd think that seeking education and learning in different fields might be a threat to that um i think it is i think it is seen as a threat um we so there's also a church education system so we would have that alongside whatever else we were doing. So from 14 to 18, we had a daily scripture study class that we would attend. So that was also there. So that, that indoctrination kept being 
it was a daily part of our lives. Um, post 18, there's also a scripture study course that people take part in. Of course, the boys go on their missions for two years. So there is definitely still an ongoing uh, religious indoctrination going on in the background. Um, I remember very clearly um, it was my A-levels and we studied uh, the American, the rise of the American West. So the sort of the pioneer era and the gold rush and the Indian wars um, of Native American wars, I guess <laughs> is what I should say now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all that kind of stuff we, we studied and that is very much within the book of mormon so the book of mormon is supposed to be a story of the american of the native americans um what we would now call the american or no what we called then the american indians the native americans they are represented in the book of mormon so it's kind of their history um but also i cut the the sort of settlement of the west was very much through a Mormon lens for me. So all the pioneers were Mormon because that's what I was taught about. Um, the covered wagons that you see pictures of, um, it, everybody was Mormon because that's what I was always taught. And it was very interesting to me because when I was doing my A-levels, um, there was a book that I was given to read. And in there, Mormons were mentioned in like half a sentence some pioneers that were going west were heading to salt lake city or something really you know not mentioning them at all really <laughs> and i just sat there and went well the book's wrong then they right. don't know anything <laughs> yeah. clearly all yeah. of the people going west were mormon mm. and so yeah the, basically the religion was ring fenced anybody that challenged that was wrong and they were correct so it didn't it didn't matter what it was that that continuously happens so yeah education was secular anything that challenged the belief was ignored as wrong so it was quite easy in a way to just go well obviously that's not correct yeah okay i can see how that works yeah it, it could be seen as a threat but not really because it's it, they indoctrinate you so well that it's not really a threat yeah and then um so you, you we, we mentioned polygamy um and you said that at a certain point your family became an eternal polygamous family that's and correct like what, what does that mean like when i hear that statement i mean i i just don't understand that. okay so <laughs> the program that you're describing that you saw a few years ago sounds very much like it was it's about the flds not about Mormons. yeah so what's that's the so they're the fundamentalist the... Latter-day Saints. They yeah. still practice polygamy. They're the ones with the strict hairstyles. They, um, yeah, so they practice a very different kind of Mormonism. Um, the mainstream church, as in the Salt Lake Church with the temples and the and the thing that I belong to, the group that I belong to, um, actually polygamy was sort of outlawed I guess in about 1890 although I think it carried on in practice beyond that because there were polygamous marriages that existed and so they didn't just dissolve they were allowed to continue um, some also went to Canada and Mexico and it was continued there as well so there, there was a slight continuation post 1890 but not so much um, however 
polygamy as an eternal principle still very much exists within Mormonism and it's very patriarchal as polygamy always is because there's um there's polygamy which is always patriarchal in nature and then there's having relationships with whoever you want to have relationships with which is a very different situation where people are equal and yeah so, yeah, um, so this, this isn't polyamory no uh, yeah this is very definitely polygamy and men choose women that they are going to marry and that was always the way it was done right from joseph smith he chose all his wives he has like 42 wives i believe um brigham young had 50 something wives so some of them were really very polygamous <laughs> um later on that dropped to sort of three or four but yeah either way um, they have a, did they have a lot of children they did have a lot of children and of course that's one of the major reasons why the religion became so uh, well grounded and so widespread because uh, Brigham Young took them to Salt Lake where nobody else lived except some Native Americans that they got rid of fairly quickly <laughs> but um, yeah and they were able to just populate they had baby after baby after baby and so yeah they that's why it became what it is today yeah. with so many members still there because a lot of them come from polygamous groups at the beginning Right. Um, but yeah, so polygamy as an eternal principle still exists. So men whose wives have died are able to take on an extra wife or another wife, but she will not. So anybody can do that. Uh, you, you know, you would be able to do that. My husband would be able to do that. Legally, you can do it. Um, but also we have something called ceilings, which is like the eternal marriage part so the one of the big tenets of Mormonism is the families are continuous so families go on forever and ever um, in their earthly state so parents are still married children remain their children and it goes all the way back through time um, and so yeah men are able to have more than one wife in heaven and so that that then happened to my family and I loved it that's what's I guess quite unusual about me. A lot of women in the church do not like it, uh, don't want to be in polygamous marriages. I accepted that completely. I was completely happy with it. I was completely happy with the fact that my husband might do that. Um, <clears throat> if I died, he would marry again and we would all be one big happy family. Or that after we're all dead, that he would take on additional wives because that's also a doctrine that women who didn't have the opportunity to be married in this life would be given to men in the next. So yeah, and I loved it. I loved that principle. I'm unusual in that. <laughs> Fascinating. Uh, um, so your, so when you say your, your family became a polygamous family, your, father this is your no but your father wasn't a mormon no no, no. so this is my mum she married a man whose wife had died right I, I so then you had two mums your father uh, was called yeah, mum, i never and knew then, her yeah then, i never knew one, one that was in heaven yeah that's yeah essentially that's how it was um but so what, I, what was your relationship like with your the, the, the your heavenly stepmum I mean, what in, um, in real... oh, I, I never had one. No, no. Well, no, but I mean, 
what do you actually in those kind of scenarios what is right. your relationship like with that member of the family so to speak she, she was always going to be there um in the next life but she was not part of my earthly life and my earthly existence I didn't really so I knew about her there were pictures about her of her in the house but you'd kind of expect that anyway they were married for a long time they were married mm -hmm. for coming up 45 years I think maybe even longer than that and so you kind of expect to have her still talked about and discussed so yeah she she didn't really feature beyond the fact that he'd been married before for a very long time she died and then he married my mum so no she she didn't really feature and I never really considered it other than she was always going to just be a part of their lives. So I guess she was, she is still part of my mum's life more than she ever was mine. Right. So, yeah. So uh, she didn't feature really. No, okay. <laughs> but yeah. in terms of the fact that I could live eternally because my mum had married this man, um, that was what I loved. So it was giving me a ticket to heaven okay right I guess so, in a way we what, were, before we were before that point you were not destined for heaven no not the okay. highest not the highest kingdom in heaven no we wouldn't oh, they've got heaven. their different layers of heaven oh yeah there's different layers of heaven okay yeah. so wait if you're a mormon child let's say yeah. you're 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 12 you're a mormon um you're 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 don't have a polygamy you know one of these eternal polygamous families yet um mm -hmm. where are you where are you told that you're going when you die you are told okay so if you're a woman you can get married so i would have as a child i would have always known that at some point i would get married and then i would be able to get to this to this let, let's uh, let's say a, a 13 year old child died yep so they happens. would yeah so <laughs> this is where family history comes in you went to the family history center up in london mm, family yeah. history huge for mormons it would be done posthumously for everybody that work would be done in temples on their behalf after they're dead so it would be that it would probably have to wait until or we would definitely have to wait until her parents died or their parents died and then that work would be done so what do they look at the what all the ancestors had done and kind of weigh up all the merit and that kind of thing yeah. yeah so everybody's just sealed together that's what they're doing when they do family history work they are essentially tying these family groups together so and that, that's an enormous lot of pressure uh for a person to think that they're the merit they get in this life determines what happens to their great grandchildren, you know, and, and yeah. is, that, is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely a thing. Yeah. Your responsibility for not necessarily your onward generations because they get to make their own decisions. So that's very much a, a thing, I guess that we, so we were responsible for teaching our children, but, what happened after that would be up to them. Your responsibility for your ancestors was huge. So marrying everybody together, sealing everybody together, sealing children to parents, sealing husbands and wives together. That was an enormous sense of responsibility because that has to go through and you can't, there's a, there's a hymn that says, says that you can't be saved without your dead. So there's definitely a responsibility there for 
doing that work and making sure that everybody all the way back is all sealed together. So yeah, that happens. So if you were a child, you would eventually be sealed to your parents. If you were an adult, you might be sealed to your spouse if you were married. Um, so for me growing up, I would have always known that I was going to be married. So I would have always made that, made that uh, target in the end anyway. But of course my mum wouldn't. So she would have then been given to a man in the next life. So yeah, that would have happened at some point. That it all gets sorted out. So if you're righteous, you're going to get there. Okay. <laughs> um, but you need a man. If you're a woman, you have to have a man to get wow. there. You can't yeah. get there on your own merit. Wowzers. Okay. Yeah. So that's so that's quite crucial, I guess. Is that yeah? So a woman can be as righteous as she can be, and like the best Mormon you could ever be, but you're not getting into heaven without a man. Yeah. You're either going to be given one or you've got to choose one. <laughs> yeah, wow. that's full on. Uh, the, the the picture that's painting for me is just a situation where there's there's just a lot of pressure on people um, yep. to live up to these ideals and, and this kind of all the levels and codes and rules. And yeah. Yeah, that's right. And of course, now with my Mormon hat on, I've now broken that chain for our family. So there's a little like bit of Mormon law, I guess, that says, uh, law as in L-O-R-E, that says that there will be, uh, well, you don't want an empty place at your table. So the idea that you have your whole family gathered together in heaven and everybody's gonna be there, but you don't want any empty, and empty chairs. So you want everybody to be there with my Mormon hat on now, I'm now the empty chair, or my chair will be empty. I won't be there now. I can't be there. Um, even if even if the whole thing was true, I wouldn't choose to be there. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, there's a name for that. It's anti-theist, but <laughs> we can go into that later on because that's, I guess, my spiritual journey yeah. um, rather than the sort of physical one. Um, but yeah, that, so I will now be an empty chair at my family's table if it's all true which it right. isn't <laughs> okay so uh, and then when you were um <clears throat> you said that the the temple became very important for you and i'm not entirely you've mentioned the temple a few times and i i'm not entirely sure what the temple is um, okay so the temple is the pinnacle of the religion so that's where you go to make sacred covenants. So we go there and we make promises. Um, we're sort of taught or led to believe, I guess, and, and taught and it's hinted at that you're making those covenants with God. Um, having properly studied those um, and looked at them, even the wording doesn't really allude to that. Um, but it's not what we were taught and so yeah so basically you go you make all these promises with God that you're going to be everything that the church wants you to be um, those promises include um, giving everything that you have your time talents money even your life it was when I went to the temple I actually covenanted to give my life um, you don't anymore but you, that that's another issue is that it changes 
<laughs> relentlessly changes. Um, so yeah, there's there's those. So that was one of the covenants that I made. Another one was that I would keep the law of chastity, and the law of chastity is very clearly defined as being sex between a man and a woman who are married to each other. So there's no leeway for LGBT people in there at all. Um, there's Oh, I can't think what the others are now. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time. So yeah. the, the, the money one, um, so money's often a feature of yeah. um, cults and yeah. organisations like this. Yeah. And there, is, is there there's a percentage of uh, your income you have to give or what's the what's the deal? Yeah, so uh, we give 10% of our income in the scriptures actually in the modern day scripture if you want to call it that um so the the modern day revelations of joseph smith it actually says increase um uh, that has now been clarified by the living prophet to mean income which isn't quite the same yeah. <laughs> at all because your increase is yeah your increase if you have 10 chickens and they lay 10 eggs your increase is 10 not 20 but capital, actually capital gains in modern yeah you would now money. pay on your 20 yeah. <laughs> that you would now be expected to pay on that because obviously it's changed and, and your income and your increase is slightly different now uh, in terms of sort of how we earn money and things now so i i kind of understand where they're coming from on that but so yeah 10 yeah, percent is the tithe the same as uh, most other sort of religious groups have a tithe um that is actually a commandment and we are asked that question every year, um, sometimes twice a year. So we have to be paying our tithing to go to the temple. If you're not going to the temple, you're not going to be with your family forever. So there's definitely a is a is a thing to pay your tithing. Do, do, I mean, how do they get evidence that people are, are paying? I mean, do you have to present your tax returns and no? Like so they don't. They take it on word. That then would come back to this power of discernment and the right. fact that the person that's interviewing you is representing jesus christ so if you're lying about it then you're lying to jesus and he knows yeah so they would all come back to that so there's a lot of um honesty i guess in that it, i it, i guess there are some situations where bishops would know so if you were driving around in your ferrari and you were living in your multi-million pound house but you were saying that you but you weren't paying any tithing so they can see what you're paying mm. they don't know what percentage of your income that is but if you were then to say actually i didn't earn anything this year so i haven't paid any tithing they might question that <laughs> um but yeah essentially they they don't know no it's based on honesty okay and then so you <clears throat> um you went to university and <laughs> you know did some student lifestyle things um yeah. and then you when you, you finished university moved back home um confessed your sins uh yeah. to, multiple times over yeah. buried men yeah <laughs> and then um met your husband that's correct yeah yeah um he was he's three years younger than me I, I don't want to talk about him in the past tense. He's very much yeah, still yeah. here. <laughs> um, but yeah, he um, he was a returned missionary. He was righteous to the core. I, I now know he wasn't. 
he never was <laughs> he still isn't according to them um but yeah so we we got married he was just straight off his mission so he was just 21 when we met um and he was 22 by the time we got married I was a little bit older because I'd like you say I'd gone to university I'd actually been traveling as well um I'd worked for a couple of years so I did have um I was a bit older when we got married I was 25 when we got married um so yeah I married him because he shows some vague interest in me and he was a good man and that was that was really it at the time he knows that I can speak openly about that um and marrying for love I guess it was encouraged but there was definitely this sense that just because you love someone doesn't mean it's right to marry them um it would be better to marry a righteous person than somebody that you're just passionate about so yeah there, there was a little bit of that in there so I, I loved him obviously and over 20 years that has developed and changed and it is nothing at all relative to how it was 20 years ago um yeah and so yeah we we got married and and that was that yeah and i stopped confessing my sins at that point because <laughs> yeah. i didn't have any i guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and then um you Interestingly, both started to become skeptical of Mormonism at the same time, but independently, as far as I can remember from you, what you were telling me. That's correct. So um, I guess we're skipping about 17 years there. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, can, what, I, can I pull you back a little bit? Just no, what, whatever you want to, whatever you want to talk about. Then that's the only reason fine. I'm going to pull you back just a little bit, because we can go to that. Um, and, and that's fine. And, and it, no, it needs to be where it goes. But what you also need to understand is that once we started having children, so we had children very quickly and we had five of them. Once we started having children, that was the point at which the real deep indoctrination happened to me. So I felt the absolute weight of being a mother and being the person that had to teach the children, because that's what I'd always been taught was my role. So my role was to be a wife and a mother and to, to take my children with me to the highest kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And so that level of responsibility married me to the church then because there was no other possible way to raise children. I had a wonderful handbook that told me exactly what to do, what to say, outlined weekly lessons for my children. It outlined scripture study for them everything was about the church it all became very very intense and i suffered with what i now know was religious scrupulosity which is a form of ocd um and i look back through my life and i can see ocd all the way through my life um i have it in the form of health anxiety now um and definitely the religious scrupulosity was huge um this these very dark thoughts about what would happen if I didn't read the scriptures that night, or if I didn't prepare a lesson, or if I didn't get everybody to church wearing shirts on time, if I, if I wasn't being exactly perfect in my thoughts. So things like if I swore in my head, I would be on my knees crying for hours over that because I was no longer worthy to take my children to heaven with me. So, 
it that sort of depth of religious conversion really took place once the children started being born and i the reason i wanted to take you to that point was because i think everybody needs to understand just how deep that went mm. and how many hours i would spend on my knees begging for forgiveness for being human yeah. for not cooking dinner on time for not ironing a shirt until it was sunday morning because that was a sin these sorts of things consumed my every thought um my husband however it didn't and that was another issue to me because he wasn't as righteous as i thought he was he wasn't as scrupulous as i was he wasn't as intensely married to it as i was so it actually caused some problems for us um because i didn't think that he was going to be with us because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do and then i wasn't doing enough to get him there so there was a lot of that going on all the way through that period of time um really for about 16 years of our 20 married years yeah i i was highly intense <laughs> like that the whole what, thing was fear yeah well what come what comes to mind is that that's actually the story of a lot of people that get into spirituality meditation health and wellness yoga yeah. you know a lot of people have these um i suppose you might call it in freudian terms a kind of super ego that's just a a very harsh parent which is yeah. like a slave driver yeah um but you you've got internalized and it's become a sub personality within you uh, yeah and and I can see it in, in my own life, um, being interested in the health and wellness and and meditation and mm -hmm. and those kind of things. And I suppose, you know, my version of it would be if I do these things, then I'll be enlightened. And, and mm -hmm. that's basically this like going to heaven. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, so. You know, I, I can recognize it in my own life and I can see it in the lives of a lot of other people and whole movements, you know, and yep. in, out in the culture. So I'd say it's, it's a very common phenomenon yeah, for humans to experience, whether they're they're religious or, or not. Um, and I mean, it's not even uniquely contained within the health and wellness and spirituality religious circles that's it's actually a very common human experience yeah, and it, it is yeah. it sucks it's absolutely <laughs> horrible and some people have the great benefit of recognizing that at mm. some point in their life and they're like ah yeah and you you kind of suddenly stop cowering beneath the whip of this awful yeah. figure that's this, you know, sub-personality inside yourself. And yeah. um, and it's a great opportunity to, and it, the relief you feel, it's a bit like a boat, uh, the, the thought that you get a kind of um, a compensatory force that the, 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 the more oppressed you've been, psychologically but in these kind of situations mm -hmm. when once that is is recognized and seen the kind of swing back is enormous and you get this yeah. massive sense of relief of like oh god 
thank you know i'm I, yeah. so glad that i'm not you know doing that anymore um so that that's one of the kind of the the, the nice things the the way the ones you get this compensation of of enormous relief uh once you see yeah. through that uh, and, and work through it but it's a lifetime's work honestly for, for most oh people. absolutely um, actually one of the things that um i've often said is uh one of the things that makes me quite sad in a way is when i hear um post mormons mostly but post anything post trauma um i am now finally who i'm meant to be i'm like that makes me really sad so i i'm not i always i was already there so as a member i'd gone through every single step i had to go through i, I was just enduring to the end at that point nothing really was going to change in my life now in five minutes or in five years i could change entirely from who i am and i'm not i'm not meant to be anyone other than mm. right now <laughs> this is this yeah. is me right now and I am free to explore every part of life that I want to explore that's, you know, safe to do so, if you like. Yeah. Um, and I think I don't want to be the same person in five minutes or five hours or five days or five years. I don't want to be that same person anymore. I want to continuously be changing. Mm. And I, I think that's actually been a really big part of my journey is this... Um, idea that I'm not meant to be anybody. There's yeah. no predetermined Catherine um, that I'm finding in myself. And I guess I, it can often be said, uh, lots of people would say it, um, particularly if they're in the LGBTQ spectrum or if they are, uh, if they were in a marriage that was unhealthy, something like that, they'll often say it then. And I. I kind of understand where it comes from, but this idea of uh, anything being finite now uh, actually is not a fun idea to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to be that anymore. Um, my, my, you know, from my point of view, uh, I, I'm not really that interested in enlightenment. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in when I used to be, uh, thinking that there, enlightenment would be this kind of end to yeah. everything you know yeah um right. some kind of final um release and yeah. my view nowadays uh although this will probably change uh you know because uh, yeah. of what we're saying yeah i i see a, a life's trajectory of just continual evolution and metamorphosis yeah um and um i I think it's it, it's not even it's not a, a worthy goal to have some kind of f grand finale. You know? <laughs> no. Yeah. No. I think that can continue on post death as well. I I kind of feel like that's going to continue on post death now. I don't I don't believe in the resurrection anymore. I don't believe in a sort of um, standard Christian life. I guess if I'm any Thing, and I'm not <laughs> but if I was to put myself anywhere it'd be closest to Shinto I think mm -hmm. this idea that there's sort of spiritual life in everything and I really like the idea that energy and matter can't be created or destroyed and as I am both I'm both energy and matter that that's just going to continue I'm going to become the roots of a tree that are going to create oxygen that's, you know, that helps water to 
flow that I could become um anything really I can I can I can become any part of life and I love the fact that I kind of almost feel more connected to my ancestors now than I did when I was doing all this intense family history work as a member um I kind of look out the window and and almost imagine that they're there still and that mm -hmm. there's some kind of spiritual energy about them because that hasn't ceased to exist it still exists so yeah that's a, that's kind of where I sit now yeah. you know but you know five minutes I yeah. might do something else in a minute <laughs> so it, well, it, it's interesting that a lot of the indoctrination if we might call it that in Mormonism is very abstract you know this this sort of sense of he the he layers of heaven and yeah. and all these things with the ancestors and things and, and now yeah. what you're describing is a much more intuitive and direct experience of yeah. that connection um yeah. whereas when it's all codified in in these kind of lists of rules and and this stuff yeah. it's it's a kind of abstraction from your own direct experience yeah and I guess um, sort of moving on now. So it, mm. that I, I needed everybody to sort of understand that intensity of how much I believed it. Yeah, sure. I, and I, I didn't mean to, just, to brush over no, that. No, not we, at all. We, we don't. But it, to... it leads very nicely. Uh, this whole mm. conversation leads very nicely into how I ended up where I am now, sitting mm. here talking to you about it. Yeah. Um, because one of the very first things that happened to me was um, that I had an experience. Where I I guess going back through life, I had lots of experiences uh, with lots of different things, but I had an experience when I was about 21, I think I was maybe 22. And, uh, and I went to Hong Kong and on Lantau Island, just outside of Hong Kong, there is a massive gold statue of Buddha. Um, and it's up it's 149 steps or something. I is it 149 steps to enlightenment? I don't know what they are. I can't. I can't remember. Something like that. It's a. It's a long way. Whatever it is, there's a lot of steps. It could be like hundreds. I've got no idea um, what I'm talking about. But anyway, I climbed up these steps, um, and we actually broke through the clouds. Couldn't see the Buddha from the ground. We walked up through the clouds, and then this Buddha was at the top, and I had a really profound spiritual experience up there where I felt closer to what I described as God at the time, because that's what I understood it to be. And I couldn't understand why I was having this profound spiritual experience at a Buddhist religious site. And that I was 21. It was before I got married. It was before I had the religious scrupulosity, but that kind of always stuck with me, this idea that spirituality and religion are somehow separate. And I was always able to sort of separate out those two things um, and understand that everybody has some kind of spiritual experience and it could be different for everybody and it leads them to believe whatever they believe and that that was all okay. And I felt quite strongly um, that while the church was the only truth that everybody else also had truth and that their truth was just as valuable and it all came from the same place that it all came from god so uh fast forwarding i guess about 16 years into my marriage um i started to really study other religions i became quite 
fascinated by other religious views. Um, I went and visited uh, Buddhist places here in the UK and in the US. I went to mosques. I made friends with Islamic people who were very religious. I made friends with other Christians. I spent time in cathedrals in Spain. I spent a lot of time having these spiritual awakenings, experiences in other religious buildings. And interestingly, I was having less and less and less within our own buildings. So at the, at the church that I went to, I was just going, it was very busy. I was always very busy. I was always in the middle of everything. I always had a job to do. I had five children to teach. It was very, very busy. I wasn't having any sort of spiritual experiences there. I never liked the temple. Um, the temple is sort of the, supposed to be the pinnacle of spiritual experience. I never had a spiritual experience in the temple ever. I never liked it there. Um, I now know why, but I didn't at the time. And yet I would go to these Buddhist temples and have these incredibly spiritual, meaningful experiences and be completely confused by that. And so I managed to create around myself this omnist environment where everybody had truth. Um, and it all pointed to Mormonism being the one truth. Um, and that everybody else also had truth, but we were the only correct ones on the earth. <laughs> so I kind of got to that point. Um, and this whole conversation started because you mentioned that Travis and I went on kind of parallel journeys without even knowing it. I'd spoken to him about this and expressed this because I kind of felt quite passionate about it. And he actually, at that point, called me an apostate, <laughs> which was deeply offensive to me at the time. I, I kind of wear it as a badge of honor now, but at the time I was very upset about that and needed to kind of bring myself back. So the scrupulosity really became very deep at that point because I was questioning whether or not I was correct and all sorts of things I it, it was very very messy couple of years um and that then led us to going to America um which was really the catalyst point for me so I don't know whether you're ready to move on to that now yeah, um yeah. that part of my That's story good. basically what happened was um we my grandma died and left us some money and we decided that as a whole family my mum came as well um we decided that we wanted to take the children to the historical sites um of the church because we wanted them to have a real deep understanding and testimony of where the church started and what it was all about um so we decided and the other thing that i'd always wanted to do was drive coast to coast across America. So we decided to put the two together and we picked up a car in New York City and we drove all the way to Los Angeles, um, taking in various church history sites. And at the very first one that we stopped at, I stood there and I was like, but that's not what happened. And I had to immediately push that aside. I was like, well, of course it happened because it just happened. But I had this quite profound feeling that what they were telling me at this site was not what happened. And then we went on to the next one and the same thing happened again. And the next one again. 
and the next one again and i was like this is whitewashed history something else happened here because it definitely happened you know the story the people were real the all the stories actually existed and there's evidence of all of those people so the buildings still exist they were real people that lived in that time it's not it's not as um historically inaccurate as the bible perhaps um where there's you know pretty much zero evidence that abraham existed for example um in terms of uh, sort of physical evidence of his existence there is definitely physical existence uh, physical evidence of these people's existence they existed they had these experiences and the church was created 200 years ago this is modern history but as i was standing in these places i was thinking but these things are taught as absolute truths and yet I don't think they are. So how do I find out what the truth actually is? Because this is so modern, there must be a way of me finding out mm. what actually happened. And that was where it all fell apart <laughs> because I, at that point, started to look into all of the stories, um, the, the historical narrative, the context of how these experiences took place and these stories started everything about it by the time we got to salt lake city which is the headquarters of the church it's the spiritual center of the church i had all but lost every belief that i ever had in so what were you re you researching this on on the internet or something sort of so we'd one of the primary um markers of a cult is that they tell you not to listen to anybody outside of the cult when they're talking about them and so looking at anything that was not written by the church was forbidden completely forbidden so it's very difficult for me to find any information out because of course anything that i came across was anti-mormon it was a lie hmm. i could only really trust what the church was saying except that i couldn't anymore i kind of felt like they weren't telling me the truth either and so this was quite a big issue i was butting up against a situation where the people that were supposed to be telling me the truth i didn't think were but i couldn't find out what the actual truth was either so i was stuck between this rock and a hard place if you like where i knew something wasn't right but i didn't know what it was um i then while we were in salt lake um going back about seven years before we'd actually had a girl come and live with us who she was a member of the church her grandparents were members and they lived in america her parents were not members and she was struggling living at home so she actually came to live with us and we became very close she turned 18 while she was living with us she then emigrated to the states and we spent a week with her while we were there and discovered that she had left the church and I didn't place any judgment on her. She just wanted to sin or she didn't understand or she, you know, whatever reasons I had in my head for her leaving. Um, I actually said to her in the car one day, I said, just give me one of your issues and ask me a question and I will answer it for you because I know everything. I, even though I didn't believe it anymore, I still, it could only be the truth. So 
some point I was going to research all of this and I was going to find the truth, right? And it was going to be that the church was true. There was no other outcome for me, even at that point, even though I felt like it wasn't true, it all had to be true because that's the way it was. <laughs> and she absolutely went for a jugular point. I don't know how she did it, but she just said to me, I don't really want to discuss it with you. I don't want to damage your testimony. I don't want to make you question anything. I said, no, 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 you won't. Honestly, my testimony is solid. Just ask me a question. And she said, what's the second anointing? And I was like, oh, I don't know. But I'm going to go and find out. And she said, OK, you go find out and you come and tell me what the second anointing is. <laughs> um, and at that point, the only way to find out was to look at anti-Mormon literature. There was nothing. The church does not discuss this at all. Basically, the second anointing is given to very, very high up members of the church, very high up. We're talking the inner circle of maybe the top 15 and a few others um, where they are absolved from all sin. So apart from murder, they can commit any sin they like. They can do anything they like and they are getting to heaven. And that's given to them in the temple. I was floored by what I found. Um, in some ways, I didn't really care about it. But what I also found was all the other websites, all the other information. There was stuff about the history sites that I just visited. And there were, there were the actual true stories of what really happened to these people. And they were not the whitewashed versions that I'd heard, that I knew I'd heard, that I knew I, weren't true. And suddenly I was reading these things were, were making a lot more sense than what I've been told. So, um, so yeah, that kind of happened. And I, in a sense, I guess I allowed myself the headspace to read these stories. Um, which and I can see why the church says not to because it's very compelling <laughs> and so by the time we got to Los Angeles another sort of seven or eight days later um I actually got to the point where I said to my husband we were packing to come home and I just said to him I don't think I can go back to church when we get home because I don't think I believe it anymore and he was like okay I'm going because I believe it and I'm taking the children with me because it's the right thing to do you do whatever you want to do. And he completely released me from all of it with no judgment. He didn't want to know. I didn't really know anything at the time. I still didn't really know anything. Um, or at least that maybe I didn't know what I knew. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I, I can't really put myself back there because it all then becomes this intense need to make it true. So we came home. I had actually quite a high ranking position within the church I was as high as a woman can go in the local community and I came home and I was like okay look this is just silly of course it's all true I have to go back and so I did and I kind of put everything aside stopped reading everything fully focused on it all the scrupulosity all came back um and then 2020 happened <laughs> and the whole world ended for a moment I'm actually just going to put a jumper on I'm quite cold um yeah and that this is where my husband joins it the journey really um we went to Tenerife 
in January of 2020, so before the pandemic. And we were there for three weeks. And he said to me that he had wanted to know why Mormons couldn't drink coffee. And so he decided that he was going to look up why coffee was bad for you. And so he set out on this mission to find out all about why coffee was bad for you. And of course, he couldn't find anything about why coffee was bad for you, just not. <laughs> and so he was like, OK, so what does God know that people don't know? What is, you know, we've got 200 years worth of science here that says that coffee isn't bad for you and it's actually quite good for you. So what is it that science is missing? And so he went on a bit of a dive and we had this discussion and I was like, well, obviously, God knows more than we do. And maybe in another 200 years, we're going to find out the coffee's really bad for us or whatever it is. I was still very much of that mindset at that point. He started to read some things so a bit like I'd done where I'd found one thing that had led me to multiple other things. He then one night said to me, um, I, I read something. And I said, oh, what have you read? And he said, I read the CES letter. Or I found the CES letter. I don't think he'd read it. Um, the CES letter is a letter written by um, a teacher, quite a high-ranking teacher within the church. He discovered a whole series of questions and he wrote to the CES director, CES's church education system. He wrote to the top guy in the church with all his questions and then published it. And it has become the catalyst for a lot of faith transitions um, because it raises so many issues. Anyway, Travis said that he found this document. I had heard about it. I knew it was anti-Mormon. And I was like, no, no, we are not even going to discuss this. Um, and about eight hours later, we were still up talking about it. <laughs> and so, yeah, we've been on these sort of parallel journeys. And at that point, we came together. and we openly discussed absolutely everything we completely allowed ourselves freedom to read everything and anything we threw out a lot of it decided that it wasn't true um we came back from tenerife and still the pandemic was a thing in china by now uh, it was not global yet um so church was still continuing so we still went to church when we came home and yeah we went we went from there. Then church was closed in March of 2020. And we were like, okay, right, this is the point at which we reset. We focus solely on the church. We take this time to do church at home, teach the children, blah, 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 blah. And within about two weeks, we decided that we were done and that it, none of it was true at all. And we could not keep teaching our children lies, whitewashed history, or anything else. And that all of the experiences that we'd had were not what we thought they were. And so, yeah, that's how we ended up here. So we, we had had these parallel journeys in a sense. We eventually came together and we left together. We left actually on the same day with the same signature on the letter. <laughs> so. Wow. What a journey. So sorry. That was. <laughs> yeah well that was a lot of talking <laughs> yeah no but it's it, it's absolutely fascinating and i the 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 journey across america you know so much happened for you i don't know how long were you, were you there how long were you in there? We were there six weeks six weeks 
you know, an awful lot happened for you in those six weeks. Yeah. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah, and you know, I tell the story with a smile on my face. I did not smile. Mm, I'm sure. <laughs> I think I cried an ocean actually mm. during that time. I could not have possibly cried more. I was perpetually dehydrated with the amount of tears, the the loss, the grief is incredible that sense of loss of everything and kind of looking at my children and going what do I do now I don't have a handbook anymore and I would actually go and ask people I would go to people and say what do you do if your children do this and they're like I don't know you mean you mean you don't know no I haven't got a clue what I do if my children do that but what do I do? What am I supposed to do? Because I'd had this handbook my whole life and suddenly we had to unpick everything. We had to unpick everything that we wanted to still do. We wanted to unpick everything that we thought we loved about the church and somehow merge it into this new life that we had absolutely no idea how to live and very quickly worked out that nobody does. <laughs> that, was, that was actually quite freeing to realise that nobody else knows what they're doing either. That was an incredible moment. Um, I remember sort of having that realisation that nobody has a clue. And I loved that. Um, and that we're all just sort of muddling through together, really. Nobody's got a handbook. Yeah. And we, well, we help each other. I mean, that's the thing. Is that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, we've got this kind of hive mind, collective mind that, uh, yeah. and we've got instincts. And some people are better at listening to their instincts than others. And we learn from each other. And we're all, making this up as we go yeah I had a conversation with one of the children's uh, educational psychologists today and um as she was we were just talking about their education and you know, what we're getting right what we can do to support them more and um and I said so basically what we're getting at is that we all screw up our children in our own individual ways. And she was like, yes, that's correct. That is exactly what we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we all have our own unique ways of messing up and getting it right. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful, actually. I yeah, think I think, really I think things that we do that we think are really beneficial for our kids can end up being harmful. The things yeah. that we do, which we think are neglectful, are actually creating positive. You know, it's. Yeah. Um, I th um, yeah, there's a famous child um, developmental psychologist. I can't remember her name. And um, her conclusion was basically that development. How it's it's the ch the child develops pretty much on their own. Um, mm -hmm under under their own steam um and um as a, i see myself as, as a parent as a kind of facilitator um, mm. i just i kind of just help them emerge really yeah that, that's how i how i see it um I've, I've got a lot of faith in nature you know yeah. and, and kids Wow. So uh, what a journey. Goodness, me. Yeah, my so, mind is, is completely blown. I um, know, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> so given we're, we're sort of uh, coming towards the, the end here, um, 
what's so it was you've you've touched a bit on you know what i was going to ask what's life like now um because it's still fairly recent you know this we're doing this yeah. podcast now it's 2023 july uh it's not july may may yeah <laughs> it could have um, been july i've got no yeah. idea really. so this is this is pretty recent so we're talking about the last three years of your yeah. life and you know what one of the things you've touched on is that you haven't got this rule book anymore telling you exactly what to do in all aspects of your life what hairstyle to have and not yep. to, not to wear black bras and things like that yeah yeah um, oh yeah we were hussies if we wore black underwear <laughs> yeah so yeah and and then you you know you, you have this yeah that you you suddenly you're finding it's difficult as everybody to make yeah. a life um what what are the other kind of main themes that you've experienced now in this new sense of freedom post-mormon the biggest thing and i constantly like every day something happens where i realize that i'm free to think and that to me has been the most incredible part of this whole journey is that i am free to think about everything and form an opinion and change it and i guess I have not fallen heavily anywhere. Like I don't have any really strong opinions about anything anymore. I did have, um, I was open to the fact that people didn't agree with me and that everybody was entitled to have whatever opinion they liked, but they were wrong and I was right. <laughs> um, and I don't think like that anymore. That has been a very powerful part of my journey, I think. To getting to where I am now and I can honestly say that pretty much every day something occurs where I think oh yeah I don't actually have to think that or oh actually I am going to think that or whatever it is and I'm just free to think um I still I guess because we can only think through the lens that we have we can't I can't think like a Buddhist I can't think like an Australian or a Russian or anybody else, but I can look at what's going on around me through the lens that I have. Um, and there are just countless every single day experiences where I think that person's like I was, or that situation is reflected in my experience. And I realized just how many people have these transformative experiences and how utterly devastating they are and yet i want everybody to experience it because it's so transformative and you know i look at russia in particular and their closed system of government their closed system of press they're not free to think and yet some of them are and and i love watching their stories unfold and just seeing their bravery in what they do. And I, I look at people, pretty much anybody who can change their mind as being incredibly brave. And, and I love that about people. I love that people can do that. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I've fallen heavily on, in any camp anymore. I don't feel like I belong anywhere, but I belong everywhere. And I really like that. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's been a big thing for me. And allowing my children to think has also been a big part of this because my oldest son in particular has always been quite highly opinionated. And actually it was some of his questioning um, at some of the historical sites that we went to that started me questioning. So he was raising some really valid points, which I was having to excuse, make up stories about whatever it was. And so, yeah, that he was quite pivotal in that in some ways. And so allowing him to then think without using those uh, cult cliches of, well, just because it is, because the prophet says so, because that's what's written and that's how it will be done. And all those sorts of things that I would have just said naturally, um, I'm far more open to say, I don't know. Um, let's go find out. Let's look at different opinions. Let's make sure that what we're reading is true. If it can't possibly be true, how can it be tested? You know, all those sorts of things. So we, and I love that. I love that part of my life now that I'm just free to think about everything. <laughs> yeah. There's um, a, a really amazing woman called uh, Megan Phelps. Um, I believe I'm getting that right. It's been a while ago since I engaged with her stuff, but she was part of the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, and, um, you know, she's not part of that church anymore. And uh, for people listening, I recommend looking up her stuff because her story, you know, is similar to, to mm. yours. Um, and um, she, I, I really enjoyed listening to her interviews. She's done one with Sam Harris and people like that. Um, okay. And then, so what, so when you, you say that you want other people to have this experience, I know that you are now quite active working with ex-Mormons. Yes. Organising events and get-togethers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and just before we recorded this, you were saying that there's, there's a lot of ex-Mormons. There are a lot of ex-Mormons. Yeah. Uh, it's difficult to know how many because there will be lots of people who just slip into the world. They just, they're not interested in the ex-Mormon space. They don't need to be there. There's uh, obviously plenty of people who come into the ex-Mormon space for a period of time and then leave. And I can't even tell you how amazing that is. They often um, write sort of goodbye posts, if you like, where they just go, I'm done. I'm healed. I don't need to be here anymore. And we're like, it's like the best thing ever. Just go, be free. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, the, we don't really know how many there are. Um, but yeah, there's a lot and, and an increasing number. We know that there's an increasing number by the fact that they are closing churches, they're selling buildings, they're um, merging areas of uh, wards. So, so in Mormonism, the church is all sort of broken up into local areas called wards and stakes. So they're closing them all over the place. They're merging them. Yeah, all sorts of things are happening. So we we can see uh, as a member, I could see it. I knew that I knew even as a member that that sort of exodus was taking place. Um, I cannot think that there's a single Mormon now that doesn't know an ex-Mormon um, who has left for theological reasons. So there are plenty of people who leave just because they never believed it or because 
um, they were young or whatever. There's still a good number of those as well, but there is now an exceptional number of people who were fully invested in it, who are leaving for theological reasons. And I think that's quite crucial mm. rather than just because they're bored or they don't want to be there anymore. And while it's easy to write that off um, and most Mormons would write me off as that, that I was offended or um, somebody told my mum the other day that I was upset about the money. <laughs> like You can be more wrong. I don't care about the money. I couldn't care less about the money because uh, there's been a big thing recently that the church has 150 billion dollars in its bank account um and so yeah i posted about that on facebook and suddenly that was the reason i left yeah um i could not care less about money for the record <laughs> if anyone's listening i don't care what i don't care that they have money i don't care what they do um it they should but that's that's a different matter i didn't leave for that reason and i think that's that's really crucial that there is this growing number of people that are recognizing that it's not true that it is damaging and they are then leaving Um, yeah and i doubt there's a moment i I imagine the internet has a lot to do with that it yeah a huge amount yeah i think a lot of um these kind of large cults that have been around for a long time are just no match for contact with the internet yeah absolutely and i also think that there's um there's this big drive isn't there for how do you know if something is true so i can remember doing that with the children when they were quite young as a member and of course when it's to do with the church then it's just because it's true if it was anything else um like they'll come across stuff on reddit and I'm like, okay, so how do you know that that's a true story? Well, because it's also on the BBC website. Okay, so you've looked it up. That's great. You you carry on doing that then, and, and that's okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of those sorts of conversations taking place, and I think people are using those critical thinking skills far more than they used to because they have to. Um, you know, mm. we, all get, we all get the scam phone calls. Yeah. We all get the scam emails. We've got to decide, have we actually won? £50,000 Argos voucher is unlikely, isn't it? So let's just check that one out before responding or whatever. And so I think naturally we're all doing that all of the time. So I guess that then is going to impact what you believe. And you hear something at church that's just so extraordinary. You're then going to go, okay, where's the evidence? And that's obviously a big thing. Anybody making an extraordinary claim has to have extraordinary evidence. And churches don't. It's just so I kind of I can separate out faith and belief from truth. And I do think there's a place for belief. People want to believe in a God. I have no issues with that at all. People telling me that that's the only truth with no evidence. That's not okay. And I think that's kind of a a new place for me to be in as well. And again, I guess why I don't really sit strongly in any position anymore because i don't know that i don't know that i will ever really know the truth of anything <laughs> anymore <laughs> and that's okay i'm quite happy with that situation yeah well, it's, it's one of the oldest insights um of the sages and mystics of all time is that the more you, the more you 
develop through life the more you realize you don't actually know anything yeah that's right um and that's okay yeah it is it is okay and i've often said it's a bit there is an absolute truth to everything but we we are rarely going to find out what that is so for example it could be raining or not outside my window there's an absolute truth to that and i can go and find that out by going and looking outside of my window you're 20 minutes up the road from me it might be raining here not raining there so i can then tell you that it's raining outside your window you would have to go and find that absolute truth for yourself and and that's it's testable and it's repeatable and i can always look outside the window and i can always find out if it's raining with faith you actually can't do that and therefore i don't see that i have to have it and i don't see that even if there was a god that I would have to believe in something that I can't test and prove. Um, of course, as a member, I would have said that I can test it and prove it. But that's a different matter, isn't it? <laughs> um, now, I don't think that. Um, but yeah, I think there's an absolute truth. We're either going to live after we die or we're not. There's an absolute truth to that. And I don't know what that is. And I'm probably erring on the idea that I'm never going to find out. Well, <laughs> because... Uh we're all destined to find out one one day <laughs> when we die so if we just die and yeah. nothing exists then we're never okay. going to know yeah. <laughs> but that there will still be an absolute truth and i actually almost find that more exciting hmm. um than i ever found this idea of this sort of eternal either joy with no pain no suffering eternal sort of baby making and family making and just forever and ever and ever doing one thing with no uh, no opposition or an eternity of damnation and burning and misery i actually quite like the fact that i just i'm never gonna know or if i do know that it's going to be something much better than anything that's currently on the table yeah i think uh reading some of the near-death experience literature can can really help um one feel yeah, a bit better about dying <laughs> yeah that's right yeah, yeah um, i think i'm a lot less fearful of it now i don't have that so there's a i don't know whether it's common across religious belief but this kind of idea that there's going to be this live action role play of our lives on a big screen in yeah. front of the whole world and everyone's going to know exactly what we did and um yeah all that all that kind of stuff I don't have that fear anymore hmm. um and i just think that's actually really quite freeing not to have that worry anymore quite like that yeah. <laughs> so yeah so um we, you know we, we've been going on a long time and i think you know we should wrap it up but there's we haven't touched on you did a course with um uh what's the guy's name stephen hassan yeah yeah who was an ex moon he's a he's a, he was a moony and he's an ex moony right. and he now yeah. has dedicated his life to working with people who have come out of cults um yeah. and that's very interesting i mean there's a whole other conversation there maybe we'll have that one <laughs> another time yeah, maybe. Yeah. um and you're also going to be starting a psychology a degree of the psychology of coercive control that's correct. Which uh, you haven't started yet, but you know, when, when you when you when you get into that course, perhaps we could uh, have another conversation about that. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I think, um, I do think that's gonna be really interesting. And one of the uh, big aspects of that is supporting people coming out of those coercive controlling environments. And a huge amount of Stephen Hassan's work is around the fact that you cannot do it for somebody else. Um, and in fact, you have to be quite careful how you deal with people that are in those high demand groups or relationships, because these cults can be one person. Hmm. led cults you can kind of get yourself into your own cult if you like um and i guess to a certain extent maybe we're all like you said at the beginning we're all we're all actually vulnerable to that um and one of my biggest realizations i guess for now is that i am still vulnerable to that mm. uh, because uh, i'm a yeah. human being yeah i um watched some documentaries on Scientology a while back. Um, Louis Theroux did one, and there's another one called um, Oh, it's just escaped me. So the whole the whole thing's on YouTube. It's a brilliant, uh, like two hour long documentary about Scientology. And I, I remember when I was looking at it, um, I was going clear. That's the name of the documentary on YouTube. Okay, yeah. Going clear. Really recommend uh, people watch that. And I remember what we're looking, what looking at, and, and I was the, the a lot of the people into into Scientology are really successful, intelligent people. Um, you know, really successful in the world. They're obviously mm -hmm. uh, accomplished people. Yeah. Um, and they're not stupid or idiots and that kind yeah. of thing. And I was thinking about things i've done in my life uh you know ideas that have consumed me for periods of my life and different groups that i become close to or, or kind of been on the periphery and looked in or other groups i know about and once if you kind of you take the scientology or the mormon brand off it and just look at the structure mm -hmm. of, of those of that way of being that kind of worldview and you and just honestly start to look at your own life and those around you it's really helpful um, yeah absolutely yeah. um interestingly actually one of the very first places i went um when i was kind of very early on was xjw on reddit that's jehovah's witnesses jehovah's witnesses yeah. that's correct and i went there first um, so there is a there is a huge ex Mormon Reddit which I um, absolutely recommend to everybody to go and read. Just go and read like the first top, the hot posts or something. It, it's just incredible the stories that come out of that, um, and also they tend to be quite funny. But um, but yeah, the the ex JWs. I was reading through their stories and I was thinking, well, this sounds really familiar. It's different words but the same language and i understood every single emotion every experience that they were talking about even though the words were different um and it suddenly occurred to me that we couldn't all be leaving the one true church they they couldn't be leaving the one true church because mormonism was but that they thought the same thing about us so yeah that was that was hugely freeing and actually stephen hassan talks a lot about how um cult survivors should speak should have should find their voices because often in cults your voice is silenced and 
you're not able to share your thoughts and opinions quite as openly. Um, and so, yeah, pe people who are leaving cults, high demand groups, abusive relationships, um, coercive controlling environments should speak out because it's the way to try and prevent other people going in. You can't release people from those environments, but you can try and prevent yourself and other people from falling into it again. Mm. And, uh, and I think reading Stephen Hassan's bike model is invaluable to the world. I think everybody should read that. It's not the definitive work. There are other things out there as well, but it's, it's a really nice um, sort of succinct way of looking at groups and whether or not they're healthy or unhealthy. It's quite difficult to see if you're invested in something, it can be quite difficult to look at it critically, but I think that's also really important. So yeah, all those sorts of things, I think it's just about thinking and not judging yourself too harshly. You're not stupid if you become entrapped by these groups. No. It, often they prey on human vulnerability. So they'll get you at a point where maybe you've lost your job or your relationship isn't quite as good or you've had a bereavement. Whatever it is where you're just feeling vulnerable, those groups can pick you up. And that can be therapy groups. You've mentioned meditation or yoga groups. They can pick you up and promise you this endlessly better world. And of course, nobody can actually do that because life just sucks. <laughs> and sometimes you just have to work your way through those things. Mm. Um, and there are other ways. There are healthy ways of working through all of those crises in life without needing somebody to come along and just make it all better for you. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah I think that's, that's really um, important. Yeah. Wise words. So just as we finish, are there any other places you would point people to or any 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 other thing you you think is important that you'd want to just share as we close um i guess if there's any post-mormons listening they'll already know where to go for support because if they found you then they'll have found those other additional sports i think talking is really important i've actually got myself to a place now where I get less involved in the conversation. Um, so I don't need to consistently hear that the church isn't true anymore. Um, I'm not angry anymore either. That's also been huge. I was angry for probably two years and it was all consuming at times during that period of time where I could barely breathe at times because I was so angry. I wanted to go and just set fire to everything and <laughs> watch it all burn. Um, and the anger, it's very, it's very uncomfortable feeling. I now recognize it as being a very positive feeling because I never want to feel it again. Besides something else, I never want to feel that anger again. So it's almost like a protective barrier around myself now because I don't want to go back to that place. Um, and I'm not angry anymore. It's, I get annoyed by things sometimes if I get sucked back into a story, but it doesn't last very long. Um, and I, I like that place and I think anybody who's early in their journey they can take heart that that happens that process happens and peace comes and yeah you you do eventually find yourself in a different place again um i don't know if it's better or worse i don't i think life's just life and yeah i think we just 
like you say, we all help each other. <laughs> I think that's really important, which is why Stephen Hassan says to talk about it, because we can help each other through, mm. through those mediums. So, yeah, really important. Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your amazing story um, with with every, anyone listening to this and watching um, and myself. It's been such an eye opener for me. Um, all of that and I and I, I admire your your courage um, and generosity to want to speak out as you say and, and share this with people and I hope it helps many people uh, and if it's on the internet hopefully it's there for a long time and potentially could help lots of people um, break free from whatever they're stuck in so yeah thank you very much I really appreciate the opportunity it's been good Thank you. I made all the music that I use in my podcasts. If you'd like to hear more of my music, please visit SoundCloud and check out my profile, Ralph Cree. Thank you.